is a Woodside Church podcast. Uh, my name is Jonathan, as you probably just picked up. It's good to see you. Um, I'm going to launch straight in because I want to get, uh, get through stuff today. Um, today is the second anniversary of my last regular commute into London. And what I want to tell you is what God's done with me, largely in the time he gave me back from that commute during the lockdown, during that first lockdown. And he basically hammered one phrase into me again and again and again and again until it became an obsession. And that phrase, Richard, if you could start the, the slides, you've got the title slide, is rivers of living water. Okay, I've spent the last two years here and I came out of lockdown different. Um, I just want to share that. I felt last autumn I needed to preach this. I needed to invite you to come with me. And of course, where we go um, for rivers of living water, everybody would go John 7, John chapter 7, where Jesus, um, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. I want to start really with looking at thirsty there and a little bit about um, living water. And in order to get to thirsty, um, we need to understand a little bit about what was going on. So this was the Feast of Tabernacles, the festival that they refer to. And that was a celebration, it was a week-long time when the people in Israel in Jerusalem would leave their houses and live in temporary shelters, tents or booths that they built for themselves as a memorial, a way of remembering the wandering in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt. It was a time of pure joy. Even though they were remembering a time when they had nothing, they were remembering a time when God had rescued them from slavery with a foreign oppressor who had oppressed them for 400 years. So it was a time of pure joy and celebration of God's goodness and God's rescuing of his people. Against that background, every day during the, uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a celebration of water. So they would start sometime in the mid-afternoon. They'd take water from the Pool of Siloam, parade it through Jerusalem, pour it onto the altar, and then they would have a party which was a party of thanksgiving to God for the gift of water. That seems strange to me, living in this country. It will seem stranger to you, I think, if you're Welsh, from my experience of Wales. But I'm sure some of you from sort of further south latitudes will understand the importance of water and that a whole nation might spend a week celebrating water. Um, And it was known in the world at that time as a riotous party and a big party, and it built up towards the last day that was the biggest party of all. Um, I think sort of last night of the proms in sort of my cultural equivalent. That was their last night of the proms. They all got together and had a big celebration of God's goodness in giving them water. Now, among those people there to celebrate water, there would have been some um, who knew their scriptures and were longing to see the kingdom of God come. Not all of them. It would be a bit like Christmas. Some of them would just be there for the party. But there would be some there who were steeped in their scriptures. Joseph of Arimathea is one that comes to mind. A good man, member of the ruling council. He knew his scriptures and looking for the kingdom of God. So scattered through the crowd, there would have been people like that. And they knew their scriptures. They knew what water was in the Old Testament. 
There's literal water in the Old Testament. God providing his people actually with water, water from a rock, or making bitter water pure for them to drink again. That's just ordinary water. But there's also water as a metaphor, as a symbol of God's presence and his blessing with his people. You'll recognise some of these. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev was the desert south of Israel. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. And so there's people at the Feast of Tabernacles. They're celebrating God's gift of water, and they know that water stands for God's presence and his blessing and his Holy Spirit with his people. But they would also know that some of those places where in the scriptures water occurs are in connection with prophecies of what God is going to do in the future for his people. He says, there is coming a time when I will come back and I will rescue you again and I'll vindicate you, Israel, and I'll exalt Jerusalem and I will be king. And so many of those, particularly Isaiah, the imagery used is water. Again, you will recognize some of these. All of these come from that kind of prophecy in the Old Testament. With joy, you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. There the Lord will be our mighty one. It will be like a place of broad rivers and streams. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. In, these are all different scriptures, not one passage, by the way. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. And one of my very favourites in Isaiah 44, I will pour water on him that is thirsty. I will pour floods on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. And so I want you to imagine the effect of somebody who knows all of that scripture um, and is looking for the kingdom of God of a week-long celebration of water. What kind of state are they going to be in by the end of it with the longing that God put in their heart? If there's one word that you could use that's consistent with the week to describe those people, it would be thirsty, wouldn't it? Yeah. So throughout all of this party that's going on, there are people that this week has made them thirsty, it's made them longing for God. And then Jesus stands up and he says, is anyone thirsty? Loud voice, because it says a loud voice because it was the last day of the party. Yeah, it was really noisy. So he shouts, is anybody thirsty? If so, come to me and drink. So this thirst is not just a vague dissatisfaction with the way things are. The thirst he's talking about there is, I want God's promises. I want what God promised us in the Old Testament. I want that to happen here and now. Are you thirsty like that, he's saying. If you're thirsty like that, I am the answer. All of God's promises in me. Yes and amen, you know that scripture. And then he says, and those who come to me, out of your inner, sorry, I will quoting the version that I know from my childhood out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water now living water has its own set of scriptures living in that context it means life giving water that gives you life it means flowing water not not, um, still water water that's flowing and it means water that's fresh Um, it's less common in the Old Testament to find living water explicitly but Jeremiah and talks to Israel and says, you have forsaken God who is your spring of living water. 
and gone to try to find water elsewhere. Ezekiel has a big picture, a big vision of the river flowing out of the temple, getting deeper and deeper, and he says, where the river flows, everything will live, life-giving water. Um, but probably the clearest place that we can look at is Zechariah. And Zechariah, this is one of those forward-looking prophecies. Something is going to happen. There is a day coming, says Zechariah, and on that day there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day, without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. Just remember that light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea, in summer and in winter. So living water, light, living water. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. God is reigning. And on that day, there will be one Lord, and his name, the only name. God's name is exalted. So four things, light, living water, king, and the name of God. And then if we fast forward, this doesn't really fit very well into the, the sequence of this. I just think this is really good. Right to the end of time, the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22. Listen to this. The angel showed me the river of the water of life living water, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. God is reigning. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The name of God is exalted. The throne of God, God is reigning. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So what Zechariah was prophesying back in the Old Testament, we see right at the end of the Bible, in terms of the river of the Holy Spirit coming and giving life, just freely available to everybody. And that's the image. I mean, the, the, the people at the Feast of Tabernacles didn't have revelation. They had all the rest of it. And that's the image that Jesus is using. And the real thing that got to me when I read this, was to see in all of those other scriptures, it doesn't say quite what Jesus says here. Because what Jesus says, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Where does the living water come from? Me. It comes from you. Yeah? That's not the end of the Bible. It's it's throne of God poured out to everybody. But right now, where we are now, Jesus said the living water comes from me and from you. And so, quite a lot of the first section of lockdown was me thinking, does that describe me? And I have to be honest, no, it doesn't. It didn't. What does river of living water mean? Well, I'll talk about that a little bit, but however I choose to interpret that, could I say that the Holy Spirit acting on me and through me was like a river of living water? Could I use that metaphor? And I said, no, I can't. Maybe a trickle now and then. And so what do I do about that, was the, was the next question. And I will get to that. I will get to the what to do about that. But first off, I want to ask three questions um, about rivers of living water. Um, I'm back onto the slides now, Richard. Um, so the first question is how important is this? Um, now, if we go to Luke, Luke's writings, Luke 24, and also Luke further in Acts, Um, He records two things that Jesus said um, to his disciples before he went back to heaven. Luke 24, he told them, this is what is written. 
The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of all sins will be preached in, in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. I've been resurrected. There's repentance and stuff's going to be preached all over the world, so let's get out there and sit down. Because that word stay means sit. Yeah? Just sit still. Stay still. Yeah, until you've been clothed with power from on high. And if that's not enough, that's Luke's, the end of Luke's gospel. The start of um, Luke's next book, Acts, he records the same instruction, possibly a different time. But Jesus says, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. And that wait is a different word. It means stay in one place until something happens. And so when Jesus booted the church for the first time, He told his disciples, do not do anything. Don't try to do anything until you've had this promise. That seems pretty important to me. We've been talking about reboot. This is sort of like putting the switch on. First thing that has to happen. So it's important. Second question. Does this apply to me? I want to go here to uh, Acts. When God actually poured out the Holy Spirit on his church. Um, This is the next slide, Richard. I haven't got a title, sorry. Does this apply to me? Um, Is that readable? So what I've done is I've just picked bits out of Acts 1 um, and 2 um, to show this point. So God is going to pour out his Holy Spirit onto his church. And those present at the beginning, he has the apostles, and he has the women who accompanied Jesus, and he has the brothers of Jesus, That's probably about 30 people, and there are 120 there, so there are a bunch of other disciples there as well. And when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, who's God going to pour the Holy Spirit out on? He could just do Peter. Peter's the leader, senior leader. He's the person who really needs the Holy Spirit, isn't he? Or it could just be Peter, James, and John. Jesus is in a circle, the ones he was closest to. Or maybe just the apostles. You know, they're the ones who are going to be doing all the miracles and going out founding churches. They're the ones who need the Holy Spirit, aren't they? Or maybe just the men. That would have fitted in that culture. Just pour out the Holy Spirit on the men. But no, they were all together in one place and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't stop there because they then pour out onto the streets where they may already have been in the streets. We don't know exactly where they were. Where they were, And they find that they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And each one of them, the gift of tongues is poured out, each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. Have you ever wondered why? Because in a few verses' time, Peter is going to preach to them all, and there's no indication in the scripture that there was miraculous translation going on. Probably they all spoke Greek, because that was the language everybody spoke for about 400 years. The Greek Empire and the Roman Empire still spoke Greek, so probably everybody there spoke Greek and could understand Peter, who spoke in Greek. Most likely, we don't know. Um, So why was it necessary for them all to hear God speaking in their own language? It was because they could not be bystanders with that happening. They couldn't stand back and say, oh, there's this funny thing going on with these people in Jerusalem. Mm, That's interesting, isn't it? That's odd. I'll tell people about that when I go home. Because there was somebody, they'd come from a corner of the Roman Empire over there, and here was somebody speaking their language, their dialect. And God was saying, this is for you. And they could not then turn away and say, "Ah, that's, that's just somebody else's thing going on here. And then Peter preaches to them. First, anointed sermon, 3,000 people 
come to faith in that one, that one sermon. And at the end of that, they say, what do we have to do then, Peter? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's not just the people in Jerusalem, not just the people who were with Jesus. It's all these who've come to Jerusalem. It's all of you. All of you have come. But then he goes on and says, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. So children, descendants, just, it just means little children, um, and all who are far off. Now, I've heard that as, that's evangelistic, go out and find people. But actually, these people had come from far off, and they'd left families and communities at home. And Peter is saying, this is for you to take home. This river of living water that's been poured out here is for you and your families, and it's to spread all over the world. God could not have been clearer in the way he sent up, set up Pentecost that this is intended for everybody. Of course, I could have just gone back to the... Uh, uh, John 7, where Jesus said, whoever believes in me, which says pretty much the same thing. But I love that bit of Pentecost. God made a point, the way he set up Pentecost as the time to pour the Holy Spirit out, that this is for everybody. Nobody's excluded. Next question is, what does that look like for me? Um, and to be honest, I can't tell you, not in any detail. Because if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is talking about gifts of the Spirit, mostly in the context of operation in meetings in the gathered church. But he says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but the same God. The same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And then he lists a load of things. Again, mostly the ones that operate in the meeting rather than things like administration and helps that are referred to elsewhere. But he says, to one there is given this, to another is this, to another, to another, to another, to another, to another, and to still another. Paul's emphasizing the difference and the variety here. What the Holy Spirit pours out through me will be different from what he pours out through Richard, different from Temba, different from Matty. Yeah? It's variety. But the God who does this is the God of Psalm 139. The God who, that this is said about. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And my experience is that God knows what's good for me better than I do. I left a career 22 years ago. Um, I was a university researcher. And I left that career, had a, had a new baby, thought there are better paid careers that I could be in. Largely, that's why I left. But one thing I was really pleased about when I left that career was never again, never, never again, will I have to stand in front of an auditorium of people and talk to them. <laughs> How do you think that's going? I, I, I remember that the last one I did, I gave up two slides early because I was drenched in sweat and my vision was starting to go. It was getting dark. I think I must have been hyperventilating. I gave up two slides early and just sat down. Um, it, it, it really was absolutely not me until God says, yes, this is you. And I'll tell you the truth, it's still really scary, but there's nothing to compare with doing this. The, the privilege of looking through the scriptures and saying, this is, this is what God says. And then the ability to bring it and take it to other people and the very thought 
that God may then take that and the Holy Spirit put it into somebody and change their life through it. It's amazing. It's an amazing privilege. God knows better than I do what gifts he should be giving me and what will fulfill me. The best version of you, forget all the self-help books, the best version of you is what the Holy Spirit will bring through you. Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts and the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So I can't tell you exactly what a river of living water looks through looks like through you. I can tell you at least two things about it, though. First of all, it will always look like love. Now, I'm not aware that I have ever heard a sermon on revival that focused on revival must be grounded in love. I don't think I've heard that. But if you read through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit, operating the gifts of the Spirit, and then he says, are we there? Yeah. Eagerly desire the greater gifts, and now I'm going to show you the most excellent way, the thing that's really important. And then he goes to a, a sequence of three, if I do this but have not love, then... And all of those, if I do this, things are about moving in the spirit. They're exciting, wonderful things that Corinthians wanted to do. And he says, if I do that, but I have not love, then I'm a meaningless noise, a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. I'm nothing, and I gain nothing. He says, whatever the Holy Spirit does, the foundation has to be love. And then he follows on into 14, back, chapter 14, back into spiritual gifts, follow the way of love, and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Get the love foundation in first. Now, I preached this back in the Nehemiah series, so I'm just going to say very quickly, if you follow through love in the New Testament, you will discover that love means sacrifice, hard work, and a degree of suffering. It's not just this airy-fairy feeling. It is a feeling. I've heard people say love is not about feelings, it's about what you do. No, there is feelings there. It's an emotion, but it leads you to hard work and sacrifice and suffering for the people that you love. So it will always look like love. The other thing that rivers of living water looks like is an outward flow. Um, Jesus himself was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And he did not say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to have wonderful meetings and feel the presence of God and keep me going for another week. All of those things are important. The Spirit does that. He loves to come and bless us and give us gifts and to keep us going for another week. But when Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, picked up Isaiah and he said, this is what I am to the people who are listening. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's Jesus. And that's the same Jesus that said, as the father sent me, same way I send you. I'm not a person who gets pictures. And that's, that's not me. I'm very much more wordy. I've had two pictures in my life. One of them, no idea what it was about. I'll see if, if anything ever happens with that. But the second one has stayed with me for a long time. And it came back during 2020 with some, some force. Sort of, I gave you this 10 or 12 years ago, but it's for now. And this is the picture, Richard, if you could put this up. It's the closest I could get on Google Images. And that's simply a lake with a dam. And that just 
came across my imagination one day in church, along with a feeling of, that should be flowing. And that's you. Yeah? I've been in church for 50 years, sucking stuff in. I've got a lot of scripture in me from Sunday school through my 20s, through the last few years. There's an awful lot in there. Very, very little flowing out. And it's just that, that, that down is an offence. That should not be there. We're made to be flowing. Living water is not static water, it's flowing water. I believe this is a, a picture, to some extent, I'm, I'm not one to knock the church. I love the church, I think the church is wonderful. But it is, in some sense, a picture of the church. We are here, we have God present, moving the spirit in our meetings, we have words being brought. Three doors down, do they know? If not, how do we get it there? We need some dynamite. We need some dams to be dynamited in our own lives and in the church. At least I do. Um, and in, in, in that water behind the dam, there's a load of silt. There's a load of shopping trolleys. And there's boats that have sunk. There's stuff that shouldn't be there that if the water was flowing, it would scour out and clear away. Yeah? The flowing water carves its own clear channel to be able to flow. That's what water does. So rivers of living water, that's a very quick canter through the thoughts through the first six months of lockdown that were going on in my head. And the subsidiary thought to that was, that does not describe me. And it should. And what do I do about that? And I should say, there was never in any of this a feeling of condemnation. I didn't feel, oh, that doesn't describe me, that's awful. Just, that doesn't describe me. And it should. It's sort of like a sat-nav. Yeah, sat-navs are wonderful, they're useful things. They say, this is where you are, that's where you want to be, and this is how you get there. It's very like a light to my feet and a lamp to my path, isn't it? Immediate turn by turn, but also you can see the ultimate destination. Sorry, this is not in my notes, but <laughs> um, it's not condemnation, but it is, you want to be there? How are you going to get there? Yeah, Because this is where we're called to. This was important to Jesus. This was the number one thing that Jesus wanted in his disciples before they did anything else. So how am I going to get there? I think it's useful to go back um, to John 7. There are some useful things in there. We need to be a little bit careful about using this to, for this purpose of Christians who are already saved who want more. It's not really Jesus' context. I could, I think, draw these things from other places, though, so I'm going to go with this because this is the one I have in front of me. Um, if you have the next slide, Richard. There are three things that are in Jesus' uh, words here before the river of living water. One is thirsty. Now, I've already said that's not a vague dissatisfaction with life. Oh, I'm so fed up. That's, God, you've made some promises. Where are they? This is Gideon. If God is with us, where's all that stuff that used to happen? Yeah? And God's answer to Gideon, you go and make it happen. So it starts with thirsty. God's promises. What has he promised? Are we thirsty for those promises? Are they important to us? Do we cry out for them? And then it's come to me and drink. There's lots of places you can go to sort of overlay your thirst and make it go away for a bit. Have you ever been thirsty and thought you'd have a bit of ice cream? I have. I love ice cream. You know, ice cream. That's, that's what pudding should all be, ice cream. But actually, if you're thirsty and you have ice cream, a few minutes later, you're thirsty again. 
You, you think you should be satisfied by ice cream. It seems the sort of thing that should stop your thirst. It doesn't, because it's mostly frozen fat. It's not water. You need to go to water um, for the thirst. And there's lots and lots of distractions around us. And one of the things I think I saw in lockdown was those distractions to extend it for some people being removed and saying, what do you really want? What are you thirsty for? And I know some people who went through lockdown a month of social media, got sick of it, and then into their Bible, yeah, and stayed in their Bible, didn't get sick of that six months later, was still in their Bible, still in prayer. Come to me and drink. And then whoever believes in me, the other element is faith. The trust in Jesus, the belief that he's going to meet his promises. And I'll come to faith again in a minute. I'm going to finish on faith, actually. But the important thing here that took me a long time to realise, this, this is not a command. Jesus is not saying, go and be rivers of living water. He says this is a promise. God says, he refers to it in those, those passages that, um, that Luke wrote, wait for the promise of the Father. This is a promise. You can take this scripture and you can show it to God and you can say, God, your word says, whoever believes in me, scripture says rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, there may be some thirst need, there may be some drinking need, there may be some faith needed, but it's a promise. Yeah. And all of those things, I believe, will bring us to a certain behaviour. I want to go to the disciples again at the start of Acts, just before the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 1. Um, what the disciples did, they came back from seeing Jesus taken up into heaven and they went straight upstairs into the upper room and they started praying. And it says, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the woman, women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This is basically the bit that I had earlier. This is who was there. Yeah. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Now, here's a little quiz. In, just, just before Christmas, David Devinish taught us a Greek word. It's a Greek word about Joseph. Um, Joseph, the good man, who was more stirred up and angry than the translations in the Bible seem to, seem to tell us, because Joseph was a particular word. Can anybody remember that word? There's a prize. <laughs> Nobody. Ah. I shall eat that later then. <laughs> That word was thumos. Thumos. And David said, that doesn't just mean, as it says, considering it. He was moved. He was passionate. He was angry. Yeah? Now, that word together, I've got underlined in both of those places. Yeah? That is the Greek word homo thumadon, which is thumos in the middle of it and homo at the beginning. We know homo as a prefix to Greek word means the same. Yeah? So the translation here seems to me to underplay what it's saying about the disciples. There's a constancy here, there's a steadfastness, but there's also homo thumadon. The best sense I can come up with it is the same passion. Yeah? They are together with the same passion steadfastly in prayer. So what God calls us to, if we want to see rivers of living water individually and as a church, is to be together steadfastly in passionate prayer. Now, that's a problem for me because I'm English. Okay? I'm probably going to need some of you uh, less reserved English people, they're not all like me, and some of you from other nations to teach me about being passionate in prayer because it's not something that comes to me naturally. 
but homo fumadon. To give you a sense of that word again, when, when Stephen was martyred, the crowd rushed at him. And in my Bible, it says they all rushed at him. But that word all is homo fumadon. That was a killing rage in that. It's not a gentle word. Now, again, as I said with, with uh, John chapter 7, we need to be a bit careful about taking that bit of the disciples' behaviour and saying that all applies to us. Because there were some things that were unique. And in particular, if you read Terry Virgo's book on the Spirit-Filled Church, he says they were never again told to wait. Waiting was a big thing in, in, in the sort of Pentecostal tradition I come from, waiting meetings. And there's a benefit in those, but that nobody was ever told to go into a room and sit and wait in the same sense again. In fact, if you go through Acts and you see what the apostles did, when there was a lack of the Holy Spirit, people had believed, but they hadn't received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. They said, right, we're going to sort this out immediately. We're going to come, we're going to lay hands on you, and you're going to be filled. It was an immediate thing. Jesus does not expect us, after that initial waiting, to go without this thing, because this is the essential thing. The essential thing to motivate us, to drive us, to keep us going, uh, to enable us. Um, so we've got to be a little bit careful about that particular scripture. Fortunately, within two chapters, the disciples find themselves in need of more. So we can look at that in Acts chapter 4. Um, and Peter and John have... Uh, Peter has just healed a man sitting at the gate, beautiful, and they've been hauled up in front of the authorities to explain themselves, spent a night in prison, um, and then they've come back to their own people. And they come back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. I'm not going to read the whole prayer, but they pray to God, they express God's sovereignty And then they say, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. We want more river, they're saying. We want more. We We don't think we have enough courage for where we are at the moment. We want to see more of the signs and wonders that got us into this trouble in the first place. Um... And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Quick question. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Three guesses what that word together is. That's homothumadon. They got together with a single passion in prayer before God. And so we have, a, we have a focus on prayer at the moment, don't we? God has called us to prayer. You know, it's been sort of visible in, in the Sunday morning meetings, the increased focus on prayer since about September last year, and then the elders saying, we think God's calling us to this. This is how we need to pray. We need to get together with like passion and pray to God to pour out rivers of living water on us. Yeah? And that moves me on to the, the final thing I want to say, which is two sides of faith. Um, and the first one, I'm going to take Isaiah 62. Um, now, Isaiah 62 starts off with God saying, I'm going to establish Jerusalem. Basically, I'm going to establish Jerusalem and make her the praise of the earth. It's lots of words to it, but I'm going to do stuff for Jerusalem. Yeah? And then it switches at verse 6 to say, I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourself no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Give God no rest until he does what he's already promised he's going to do, is what Isaiah says. Yeah, you got that? 
God has promised it. But Isaiah says, you have to then pray it. And you have to give God no rest. That's homothematon, isn't it? That is people getting before God with passion and saying, God, I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me, like, like Jacob did. And so there's a side of faith, which is, I am going to pray fervently. We are going to pray fervently for as long as it takes until God does what he's promised. Yeah. There's a second side to faith, though. And this is an interesting one. I was in a, um, in a prayer meeting once. It was a regular prayer meeting. And as usual in the prayer meeting, it's a midweek one, somebody was praying, God, will you send your Holy Spirit in power on Sunday? And I found myself thinking, not everybody who's there on Sunday is here now. Are we asking God to ambush them? Do we know that they want that? And secondly... It doesn't really matter where it starts, does it? If God's going to pour something out, it could start here. Why not the people who are here and who want this? Why aren't we saying, pour it out right now, right here on us, as we're gathered in your name? Because it's entirely consistent with what God says in Scripture. And so what I did, and those who know me will, will understand why I did this, is I kept, my quiet, kept myself quiet <laughs> and went home at the end of the prayer meeting not saying anything. Um, because actually, I discovered... The alternative to that was to say, I think we need to pray for God to move right here and right now. And I have two reactions to that that immediately sort of well up in me. One is, but he's not going to. He's not going to. So the faith that gets me to a prayer meeting is willing to stay and pray fervently for as long as it takes. Needs something extra to say, God could do this now. Yeah? Because in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost came. They were all together in one place and suddenly... It starts at some point. God starts to do stuff at some point. And he did it with them when they were praying for it to happen. Yeah? So I do have, I did have the faith to be at a prayer meeting asking God to do something at some point in the future. But the idea of saying, God, do it now, and maybe he won't, was a level I didn't have. To be honest, I still don't. <laughs> Most of the time, I still don't. The other thing that comes to my mind is I don't have rose-tinted spectacles about these things. It's going to take effort. It's going to have a huge impact on our lives. You read the stories of revival, things are turned upside down. And so I find myself saying, God, will you pour out your spirit? But actually, the next couple of months are really busy. Um, end of June, stuff starts to, starts to ramp down a bit, but then... Mm, that's holiday season. You can't really have a move of God when half the church is away, can you? So um, moving on through yeah, August bank holiday, lots of people away still. So probably by the start of September, people will be back. I won't be so busy. Of course, things start happening at the end of September this year. And then we're into Christmas. So Lord, will you pour out your spirit on the second and third week in September? Yeah. Now, I'm exaggerating. Obviously, I'm exaggerating. But Jesus told a parable that was just this. The kingdom of heaven is a banquet. Come to my banquet. Oh, I've got other stuff to do. Yeah. There's a whole load of stuff in me that will have to move out of the way if God moves. And I don't want all of that stuff to move. And so on both of these things, these last two, God moving now and me being really willing for it, um, I need to say, like the man in the Bible, I believe I have a degree of this, but help my unbelief. Yeah. And so I have taken longer than I meant to. Um, and really having realised that that was where I was going to end this morning with that faith, I realised I had to say, shall we do that? Yeah. Um, 
So I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And this is why we've saved a time of worship for the end, because I believe we need to come back, and I'm going to give us the chance to do this. Um, and I think what we'll do, if you just play something quietly, um, I would like, if you feel that God has touched your heart with something I've said this morning, um, you're thirsty, you, you, you want to see more of God, you're aware of things that need to shift out of the way, you're just desperate for God to move, um, then I think what I'll do, I'll just, we'll, we'll have a couple of minutes of just quiet. Um, I will try to remember a couple of verses of a hymn, a hymn about the Holy Spirit coming. And in your own heart, you take what God has said to you today and take it back to him and say, God, I want this. Can I have this, Lord? Particularly if, you, if, if God has said, this is for you, rivers of living water, get that coming out of you. Then bring that back to you. you. You might want to stand. Sometimes I find it useful if I'm responding to God just to do something. You don't have to, but if it's useful for you to stand, then do. And I will just, um, a verse of that hymn, a few seconds of quiet, another verse, a few seconds of quiet. And then I'm trusting that in that period, God is going to light in some people a desire to pray here and now for God to come here and now and do something. So if you feel God stir that in you, then as soon as we're done with that, will you just come, grab the mic or stand up where you are and shout and pray for God to come, not tonight at the prayer meeting, not next week, but for God to come and do something in our hearts right now. Is that okay? Okay. No, no singing, just yeah. um, Father, we come to you. Father, I've asked that I've done, done your word to me justice this morning, that it's kindled fires in some people. And we just come quietly, Lord, each in their own heart, with what, what we want to bring to you, our requests for you, our desire to see you move, our longing for the promises that you've given us. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew. So I will love the things you love and do the things you do. Church podcast. For more information, visit woodsidechurch.com.